Big Ed went forward. He got in line. When it was his turn, the preacher looked up at him and he said, Big Ed, what can I pray about for you? And Big Ed said, well, you could pray about my hearing. And so the preacher stuck his finger in Big Ed's ear and he put his hand on Big Ed's head and he began to shout and holler and pray. And after a few minutes, he was done and he removed his hands and he, he looked up at Big Ed and he said, Big Ed, how is your hearing? Tell me about your hearing. And Big Ed looked at him and he said, well, I can't because it's next Wednesday at the courthouse. <laughs> Misunderstandings can lead to missed opportunities. That preacher missed an opportunity to pray for his court hearing because he misunderstood. Same thing can happen to us in our walk with Jesus, in our spiritual lives, and that's why we want to look at life-changing power. Because unfortunately, too many of us understand the presence of Jesus in us, but do not experience the power of Jesus through us. We know lots of doctrine. We even know that he broke the power of sin at the cross, as we just worshiped him about. But there's more to it than that in this Christian life. It is not all up to us. Now, we often say that we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. But this morning, we want to focus on the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Because wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection power. And he is at work in us and through us. Our core value today is life-changing power. We believe that we are helpless to change ourselves from the inside out. That left to our own devices, the character and conduct of Christ will not emerge. No matter how sincere we are and no matter how good we attempt to be. We believe that Jesus offers and uses his resurrection power to transform us. So today we're going to look at the biblical historical account of Lazarus. This passage is found in John chapter 11. It's a familiar account. It's a biblical account, a historical account. It's in the Bible because it's true. And in this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we see a number of misunderstandings. That seems to be the key, key thread that is pulled through the entire chapter as we look at it. So I want to take a look at John chapter 11, and I'm just going to kind of narrate it for us if you want to follow along in scripture, but in verses one through three, we learn that there is a man named Lazarus who is sick, and he is living in a little village called Bethany. Now, now Bethany was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. So it's less than a two-mile walk. It's on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And Lazarus lived there with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And these were three individuals that knew Jesus well. They had followed him. 
they had learned from him. They had hosted him in their home numerous times. These four had a very close relationship. And we see that stated by John in verses 1 to 3. And so Martha and Mary, they know where Jesus is located. Now, he's just completed that six-month journey from Galilee heading toward Jerusalem. And he's headed there for Passover. We know the end of the story. We know that he's going to go to the cross and take on the sins of the world. He's going to pay that penalty for sin. But the disciples haven't figured that out yet. And they prefer to be away from Jerusalem. So they're not in Bethany. They're probably a day's journey away. And Mary and Martha know where he is located and they know how to reach him. So they send a messenger to him. And the messenger goes to Jesus and he says, the one you love is sick. Lazarus. He uses that great term for love. You know, there are four Greek words for love. And this one is the word phileo, a brotherly love that he has for Lazarus. And so Jesus tells the messenger in verse four, this is for the glory of God. This will not end in his death. Lazarus will not end in death. Now that's good news indeed, right? And the messenger, I'm sure, just like all of us, thinks that when God says he's going to do something for his glory, that it's going to be what we want, right? We want God to act for our glory. In fact, we often say, or for his glory, for our good, we often say God's going to act for his glory and for our good. And we often equate that with we want him to do what we want when he works for his glory. But he wants us to align ourselves with him. He wants us to want what he wants. And we don't always understand how that's going to work out when he works for his glory. Well, strangely, Jesus waited two more days. Two more days. He did not go right away to this man, to see this man that he loved. And so there's a tension that builds. Jesus knows that for the glory of God, this is going to reveal his identity in greater ways. It's going to reveal greater attributes of God. But they don't know that yet. And they're curious as to why Jesus would not come. And then in verse 7 through 10, we see out of the blue, Jesus just says, hey, let's go. Let's go to Judea. Let's go to Bethany. Let's go see Lazarus. Now, at this point, the tension really increases for the disciples because they don't want to go to Jerusalem. They know that just a short while ago, Jesus was there claiming equality with the Father when he gave his teaching on being the good shepherd and that the people of Jerusalem had sought to destroy him, to seize him, to stone him, to kill him. They also knew that by association that might lead to their own death. And they understood those, those kinds of threats. They also knew that Jesus, they were probably beginning to put it together, three times on this trip from Galilee had told them that he must go. It was God's will to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And so all of these thoughts are swirling around in their heads. And they say to him, 
I don't know if that's a good idea. Should we do that? And Jesus in verses 9 and 10 gives somewhat of a parable. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about 12 hours in daylight and 12 hours in darkness. And, and what he's saying is that the one who walks in loving obedience to the Father is in the will of God. And the one who walks in darkness is in evil. He's telling them that as he walks in the will of God, that he is protected by the Father until his appointed time. So he is able to go forward in full confidence. But the disciples, because they are very emotionally driven at this point over this decision, don't find much relief in that. They understood the threat of death. They misunderstood the will of God and the protection he affords. The Father's protection is complete until the appointed hour of Jesus. Well, in verses 11 through 16, we have a little bit of a comic misunderstanding here. Jesus tells his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go so that I can awaken him from his sleep. Now, sleep was a figure of speech for death, for physical death. It was used throughout the Old Testament as well and used in that culture. And so Jesus says that. And the disciples, instead of just celebrating or instead of saying, okay, let's go, they say, okay, great. If he's asleep, he's going to wake up and he'll recover. We don't need to go. Once again, because they misunderstand the power of God, they are not ready to go to Jerusalem. That's not something they want to do, whether Jesus is with them or not. They see it as a way out. Well, Jesus has to make it plain then. He just says, listen, Lazarus is dead. And honestly, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm glad we're not there so that this will strengthen your faith. Everything that Jesus is doing, he's asking them to think about their relationship with him, to have a better understanding of his love and his power and his grace. The disciples understood literal sleep. They misunderstood God's power over death. So verses 17 and 19 come along, and, and we see that Jesus came to Bethany, disciples in tow. He comes, and he doesn't enter into the village. He doesn't enter into the home of Mary and Martha, but he gets word there, and he learns that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, it was the custom of the day in Jerusalem in Israel in Judea to bury someone the same day that they died mainly because it was so hot there and the body would begin to decay and they didn't use all the embalming methods that the Egyptians did so we kind of cover them with spices wrap them in some linen throw them into a, a, a rock hewn tomb or a shelf in a, in a rock cliff and cover it with stone and so Lazarus has been in there four days. And when somebody would hear this in the first century, they would know that he had begun to decay and that the stench was pretty strong. It was common to grieve for a few days, but fortunately, Mary and Martha had a lot of close friends in Jerusalem. These were not professional mourners. These were people who actually loved them. And these people came out from Jerusalem and they came out to mourn with them, to console them. 
to comfort them. They were with Mary and Martha when Jesus arrived outside of Bethany. It doesn't say this, but being human, I am sure there was a little bit of disappointment in their hearts that Jesus had not happened to be there when Lazarus got ill, that Jesus had not come much more quickly when Lazarus became ill. Well, in verses 20 to 27, we see some powerful, powerful words. And, and the first thing we see is that Martha has gone out to visit with Jesus outside of Bethany. And the first thing that she says to him is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She was convinced that he had power to heal. She was convinced that he could have healed her brother. Martha had a sincere but limited faith. She knew that Jesus had healed many people, but she didn't think that he could raise the dead. Or, or maybe she didn't think that he could do it if he wasn't present. Or maybe she didn't think he could do it if it wasn't before Lazarus died or immediately after his death, like Jairus' daughter. We don't know what's going on. We just know that she, she believed that her brother would still be alive if Jesus had been there because she certainly knew of his love for them and his power. Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She understood the doctrine of the resurrection, but she didn't understand yet that Jesus is the resurrection. Martha agreed with him because in the Old Testament, we saw this in Daniel 12 last summer, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. That was taught in the Old Testament. It's kind of vague, kind of confusing, but it would become clearer in the, in the New Testament. She understood the doctrine of the, the resurrection, but misunderstood Jesus as the resurrection. And so Jesus says that in verse 25, one of the most powerful verses in this entire passage. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He's very clear uh, about his identity. He is the resurrection and the life. He lets her know this. He speaks about physical death and spiritual life. Even though someone dies physically, they will live eternally if they believe in him. And of course, that's the whole message of John, right? Every chapter talks about believing in Jesus Christ. Eight times in this chapter, he talks about believing in him, whether it's strengthening their faith or coming to him as Savior. And so Martha declares her personal belief in him. She says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, even who, he who comes into the world, you are the God-man incarnate. 
Those are incredible titles of God. And they strike deeply at the heart of belief. And they reveal the salvation that Martha has, possesses because of her faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 28 and 29, we kind of have a, a, a transitional section where Martha has said this. Now she goes to get Mary and Mary comes out to see Jesus where he is. Those who were in the house with Mary, some of those people had come to comfort them and console them, follow her out. They assume that she's going to go to the tomb and she's going to grieve there. So they're going to come with her. And they learn that she's going to see Jesus. And so I'm sure they give her a little space. And then we see in verses 30 to 37 that she's going to repeat the same thing. Mary came to where Jesus was in verse 32, and she said the same words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a cry of the heart that many of us have cried at different times. May not be the death of a loved one, but it may be all kinds of circumstances. God, if you had shown up, we know that cry. And she's crying from the heart, and she does it while she's down at his feet, because that's the posture of Mary. The three times that we see her in the gospel, she is always worshiping Jesus at his feet. But she lets him know what is on her heart. And this moves Jesus deeply. More than once, especially in this section of verses 30 to 37, we see that Jesus is deeply moved. We see that he weeps. And certainly he weeps because he sees Mary weeping, his close friend. Certainly he weeps because he knows that his friend Lazarus has died and he had not gotten there to see him. But these words are actually much stronger than that. And while I honestly believe that his empathy and his compassion is revealed here, I believe that the way it is worded, and more than once, that uh, and the word itself actually means that he is angry. He feels this viscerally, very strongly, deep within, that he's actually angry at the consequences of sin and death in a fallen world. That's what has moved Jesus. He is troubled in spirit, we read. And he is troubled in spirit because of the influence of Satan in this world and the consequences of sin leading to physical death. I believe his anger was primarily aimed at the condition of this fallen world. Well, we read in verse 35 that Jesus wept. That great little verse that everybody wants to memorize when they're having a competition for number of verses memorized. And then the Jews who are around are divided in their opinion of what those tears mean. Uh, on the one hand, they say, well, surely he loved as Lazarus. Look how, look how greatly he loved him. He wept for him. And then there were others who said, well, no, he's weeping because he could not help Lazarus. This, this man who could heal the blind man could not help Lazarus. They understood his love, but they misunderstood his power. 
And in verses 38 to the start of 41, we see that they took Jesus to the grave. He had asked where it was. They took him, and they get here, and he says, remove the stone. And Martha, because she's not expecting a resurrection of the dead, she's just thinking very practically. She says, no, Lord, the stench is going to be awful. He's been in there four days. He's decaying. This is the kind of stench that just fills your lungs and it burns your nose. You, you can't escape this. Jesus says, remove the stone. She's not tracking with Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus reminds everyone that he's here to reveal the attributes of God, the glory of God. He's here to reveal God. He's here to reveal himself as God the Son. And so once again, we're reminded that Martha understood the doctrine of the resurrection, but not Jesus as the resurrection and the life. The tension continues. Why are we doing this? Why are we opening the tomb? And then in verses 41 and 42, they remove the the stone. The stench had to be there. And Jesus takes his time. He doesn't raise Lazarus right then. He expresses his dependence upon the Father. He, he talks to the Father. He's, he's making sure, as he has all through the Gospel of John, that he is lining up with the Father. I and the Father are one. I only do what the Father tells me to do, I only say what the father tells me to say. And so he's talking to the father and, and then he thanks the father for hearing him. And he's doing this, he says, so that those around will know of his dependence upon the father, even though he possesses life-changing power. They understood his claims to be equal with the father but they misunderstood his dependence upon the Father. Jesus took the time to make that clear. And then we read in verses 43 and 44 that when he had said these things, he says very specifically, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus hops or lurches out. He's still bound with linens, probably loosely. They're starting to fall off of him, and Jesus says, unbind him, free him. Jesus Christ has raised Lazarus from the dead. He possesses life-changing power. And whereas Martha was looking to the future when she said, I know that Lazarus will rise again, he brought it into the present. And I think that's one of the things that we must misunderstand in our lives when we misunderstand that we, we understand that Jesus is in us, but we misunderstand that his power is working in us and through us. We misunderstand that wherever Jesus is, his resurrection power is available right now. Because he is the resurrection and the life. We saw the powerful love of God in, the, in this account of Jesus and his interactions with his disciples and with Mary and Martha and even Lazarus. We heard of his claim to be the resurrection and the life, yet there was so much misunderstanding, even by his closest followers. That happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? 
We admire him. We understand. We think highly of his attributes. But we misunderstand the power of his life on a moment-by-moment basis. We're not much different than his disciples, especially when it comes to the transformation that he works in our lives. When it comes to becoming more like Jesus, there are often two camps that, that people fall into. The first one is, he is so great, there is no way I could be like him. And that group kind of gives up. That group kind of quits. They want to be sincere in avoiding hypocrisy, but they don't need spiritual disciplines. They don't need to walk with Jesus. They just know it's impossible. After all, he's Jesus, right? He can do that. I cannot, they say. The second group says, you know what? I'm going to try real hard to be like him. And so they have this huge rallying cry within to do everything possible within their power to be just like Jesus. And unfortunately, both groups understand that that Jesus modeled the perfect life, the righteous life. But they misunderstand that he's also the means of the perfect life, the righteous life. And, And so... The people who say, I'm going to be just like Jesus, I'm going to try real hard, which is most of us on most occasions, we get exhausted. We end up with disappointment and discouragement and shame because we can't achieve that on our own and in our own strength. We become exhausted. There's a great deal of collateral damage. When it comes to trying to follow Jesus on our own, I like the way John Eldridge put it. He said the feeling that most people, most Christians live with today is try harder, feel worse. Try harder, feel worse. Most of us can identify with that. And that's again, because we are trying to do everything in our power. It's all sincere. Our motives are correct. But we can't do that. We can't live that way. When we experience a Christian life that's summarized as try harder, feel right, worse, then we have completely left behind the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. We understand that we are to become like him, but we misunderstand the manner in which that is to take place. We do it in our own strength, and we become weary. The truth is that only Jesus Christ changes lives from the inside out. Only he can transform us. You remember Jesus' warning to us in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need Jesus like we need oxygen. We don't need oxygen just all around us in this bubble that we walk around. We need oxygen inside of us because it's life-giving. It's the same thing with Jesus. We don't need to just know that Jesus is in us. He has entered our life through the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in him. But that he is there to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to be sufficient for all of our needs apart from him. We can do nothing. Jesus has no intention of 
letting us become whole apart from a moment-by-moment -moment dependence upon him. You and I must surrender our self-determination. We must deny ourselves, take our cross, and follow him. It's one thing to have him present. It's quite another to live in submission to him. He will transform us by his power because he's not simply the model for living. He's the means by which we are transformed. Jesus declared to Martha, I am the resurrection and life. He brought it into the present. Now let's think about that. Jesus is the life. Jesus would repeat that in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul would put it this way in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We know that he is present when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We receive forgiveness and the free gift of eternal life. His life lived in and through us. The secret of Christianity is the life of Christ in you. We understand that he lives in us, but we misunderstand that he is there to lead us on this faith journey. His resolution for us is not self-transformation, but transformation through his life-changing power. And our core value is not about our best efforts to be holy. Our core value is about experiencing the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, letting him transform our lives. He is the life. The second aspect of his declaration is, I am the resurrection. As I said before, Martha confirmed her belief in the future resurrection, and Jesus brought it into the present. I am. Wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection power. If he is resonant within you, there is resurrection power for us to depend upon, to trust in. As believers, we can know the power of Christ's resurrection. We know that we were united with him in burial and death, and we were raised with him to walk in newness of life. Paul would cry out in Philippians 3, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. That is one of the desires of our heart, our life. Again, he's not the model to imitate. He's the means of our transformation. Wherever Jesus is, God's resurrection power is available now. And when we trust Jesus by grace through faith on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, we experience his life-changing power. We don't simply want to think about Jesus and who he is and what he does on Sunday mornings when we gather here or Thursday Bible studies or any other time when we're really focused on him. We want it to be an encounter that we have with Jesus every moment of every day. That's our desire, to let him live his life through us. We understand that spiritual disciplines and practices are important. They are a way that we avail ourselves of his life and of his grace. And so it is worthy to practice them. Prayer, study of God's word, biblical meditation, obedience, service, worship. These are all ways that we connect with Jesus Christ. But we can't let those be routine. We can't let our hearts become disengaged when we practice those, because if they are healthy, then they are life-giving to us, and they keep us connected to Jesus Christ. Because apart from him, we know that we can do nothing. Apart from him, we won't be transformed. 
Sometimes it's even more simple than spiritual disciplines when it comes to allowing Jesus to live in us. I like this simple prayer that, again, Eldridge offers in the same area. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you today to live your life. Allow your life to live through me. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you today to live your life. Live your life through me. When we pray a prayer like that, especially those who are weary and exhausted, there's great relief. Because right away, we're expressing dependence upon Jesus Christ. We are refocused on allowing his strength to come through. It doesn't prevent us from doing what we have to do. It doesn't stop us from taking action or living in obedience. But right away, we, are, we know we're connected to Jesus Christ. And we're relying on his power and his strength to work in and through us. And as we do that, he continues to transform us into his likeness. Remember how Jesus expressed his dependence upon the Father. He did that in prayer before he raised Lazarus. He gave us that model throughout the Gospel of John. His dependence upon the Father was moment by moment. And because of that, he was able to say, I and the Father are one. You and I want that kind of relationship. We don't want to be left to ourselves and in our own strength to carry out this life in Christ. We don't want to be those who are weary and exhausted all the time. We want to be those who experience the very power of Jesus Christ. And it is there by grace, through faith, simply trusting in him moment by moment. That's how we walk down this path with Jesus. There's relief in praying a prayer of dependence like that. Our brokenness and our sin and our circumstances are not something to be overcome so that we can experience his power. There are occasions for us to cry out, to experience his power, for Jesus to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to heal us, to transform us. Wherever he is, and he is in us, there is resurrection power. Well, misunderstandings can lead to missed opportunities. That happens with us when we understand that Jesus is in us, but we misunderstand that his power is available to us, that his power is working through us when we trust him. And so we must be a people who avail ourselves of his grace and who ask him, us, ask him to fill our lives. I like how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live, in, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Find rest in Jesus Christ. Allow him to fill your life. Our second core value is life-changing power. We believe we are helpless to change ourselves. What we believe because of God's love and power and the life-changing power of Jesus Christ that we will be transformed. That this goal of Christ's likeness is not just some unreachable, unattainable goal, but it's put in Scripture because that's the faith journey that he's put us on, and that's the completion he will bring us to. Wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection power. Because he lives in you. He is with you. Trust him for that power. Allow him to fill your life. 
as you serve the body, as you walk with Jesus, as you commune with him, as you go out into the world to proclaim the gospel, allow him to fill your life. Let's experience his life-changing power because he is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this adventure of the faith journey you've put us on. And we thank you for your promise in Philippians 1 that you've begun a good work in us when you made us alive, though we were spiritually dead. And you will complete that work. And so we trust you. We ask for the grace to learn to trust you moment by moment, to ask you to fill our life, to practice dependence on your power, and most of all, to experience your life-changing power. We pray this in your precious and your mighty name. Amen. Let's stand together. From your burden of sin, there's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power. people didn't know that song not many. there's there are hands up in the air I'm not gonna tell you who it is but we had somebody on the worship team that didn't know it either
Her name rhymes with Angela Ward. I totally just put my hand up. I had my hand up. <laughs> That's an old hymn. I can't believe you guys didn't know it. All the, all the older people sang really loud. I learned it. That you would bear my cross 
Shouldn't have done that. This is church. I forgive you. <laughs> it's all about forgiveness.